Human papillomavirus and cervical cancer is an association that was made many years ago. Of course, before that, cervical cancer was a big mystery. But in recent years, there has been vaccine development aimed at trying to treat the types of human papillomavirus by actually preventing them. The thought was, if you don't get human papillomavirus, you're not going to get the types of virus that can lead to cancer. You can prevent cervical cancer from occurring. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. With me today is Samantha Gottlieb. Samantha Gottlieb has written a book, and it's talking about human papillomavirus and cervical cancer. It's called Not Quite a Cancer Vaccine, Selling HPV and Cervical Cancer. First of all, Samantha, welcome to the program. Thank you. My first question for for you. What spurred your interest in this particular topic? Certainly it's it's a very important topic, but what, what made you become interested in following this up? Well, I have worked in sexual health over the years. I have a background in public health and behavior change and risk models. And I was really curious when I heard about the vaccine coming on the market. This was in maybe 2004, 2005, because to me, an HPV vaccine sounded pretty amazing. HPV is really common. Almost everyone gets it. And the idea that we would have another method to help women and men protect themselves from sexually transmitted infections seemed like a really fantastic development. So that's sort of where I first came to sort of thinking about the vaccine and sort of what was curious about it as it started to become available. You know, and it's interesting you talk about it as physicians and physicians who have families and physicians dealing with other people. Obviously, when the vaccines were made available, it actually started a debate. One was about adolescent sexuality. Others who were questioning more vaccines being added to children also took that on as well. And I always use the argument, well, it's not a bad thing to talk about sexuality for adolescents. So the worst case scenario is we're talking about something that we can bring up in an open forum with families that maybe was a little more difficult to bring up in the past, and that wouldn't be a bad thing. Do you address mm-hmm. that and talk about that aspect of it? And was there any benefit for that? Yeah, I mean, I talk about that a little bit. I sort of followed the vaccine as sort of the public started debating it and considering it and the legislative policy that was proposed in many states after the HPV vaccine became available. But yeah, I absolutely agree that talking about the HPV vaccine shouldn't be stressful or scary for physicians. You know, I think I was would always ask doctors when I was doing my research, and sort of like, you know, well, how do you talk to your patients about this? Because I just sort of in casual conversation with my own practitioners. And I think because HPV is so common and difficult to prevent, it's not really been part of the conversation, right? We don't really, most doctors don't really teach people about HPV because it's sort of later in life when women start getting pap smears that that conversation becomes a little more common. But even still, it's not really discussed as HPV. It's discussed as cervical cancer screening. And the two are obviously related. But I think my biggest critiques of the vaccine was sort of that there wasn't an increased discussion of what HPV is or educating people about HPV. And there's a lot of evidence that shows before the vaccine was available that there was very low awareness of HPV. People did not know what it is. And, you know, I think that's a failure, actually, on the part of health education. It's interesting you say that because, again, I've been doing radio and TV for about 30 years and way before the vaccines, we talked about human papilloma. I remember in the late 80s talking about human papillomavirus and the link with issues with warts in the esophagus for patients. I remember being at the University Mm -hmm. of Chicago talking about that. Tons of stories were done, just like we did tons of stories on everything else. Might have been dwarfed by herpes and the drama associated with that, or obviously HIV. Do you think people just didn't listen to the information that was provided to them about Mm -hmm. HPV? Because I I, I do differ 
differ with you, at least on that sense. I think mm-hmm. uh, as being a broadcaster and being a physician broadcaster, we were doing it and we were talking about it all over the country. Where was the mm-hmm. disconnect? Like, why wasn't it picked up? Because obviously you found it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, well, I was basing that on existing literature and existing studies on HPV awareness before the vaccine was available because my work is qualitative predominantly and ethnographic, so it's difficult to capture broad population you know, survey data. Okay, so you're looking at, like, were there studies done looking at HPV and its impact and what it meant, like that? You're talking about that? Well, I, I yeah, that was sort of, you know, just to sort of, I was curious to see, did people know about HPV before Merck started marketing the vaccine, before the legislature's began considering the vaccine. So, I mean, it's interesting that you say that you did talk to patients, and I think I'm sure there are many providers who do talk to patients about HPV, but I do think that the women that I talked to, the mothers I interviewed, that one, for example, one mother said to me, you know, well, I'll keep, you know, I actually had warts and I thought my partner was clean and, you know, I'll teach my daughter to recognize HPV. Well, yeah, warts are a visible sign of HPV, but they're not the cancer sign. Well, that's interesting because um, we and, used to say, okay. what we would stress is HPV is a virus, just like you have a virus when you get a cold. It is when you don't even know you have it, you're most infectious. This is when people are most mm-hmm. infectious with HPV. You got to take precautions. But let's moving on past that. Okay, so we're talking yeah, about, sure. okay, now the pharmaceutical industry gets involved. And, you know, I have a, again, having done this for a lot of years, I remember I interviewed one time C. Everett Koop, who at the time was the Surgeon General, and we had a great mm-hmm. interview, but we were talking about at the time, I was dead set against the chickenpox vaccine. I said, varicella does not harm that many people. And he said, Brian, where were you when we were debating it? Because let me tell you something, young mad, because I was a younger doctor, and he said, now that we have a vaccine, it's got to be 100%. And he taught me about vaccines and herd immunity and that mm-hmm. whole concept, which I I bought. Then we go into HPV. And I remember at that time, I was like, well, are you taking out all the causes of cervical cancer with this or just some? Because I don't want patients to think I'm not at risk. I mean, I certainly want to reduce cervical cancer, but if I've only got, you know, strains 18, 6, not whatever they are doing it, but there's other strains that will, and we don't know if they will, you can't say it's a hundred percent cure. And that was my, although I talked about the vaccine and its importance, And I also was a big person saying both boys and girls should get it because just pop, mm-hmm. just doing half doesn't really help. And we went right. through all that, but it was, a very, again, it was a very political thing, as I remember. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's a variety of things to say to you. Um, I mean, I agree with you on a lot of what you're saying. It is important for it to be both boys and girls because not it's not just cervical cancer. And that's sort of where some of the title, you know, my cynicism in the title is, hey, you know, this is HPV causes a lot of different cancers, cancers that affect men and women. Um, and you mentioned the like, esophageal, um, right. you know, work lesions and, you know, throat cancer now is highly associated with HPV. So both boys and girls are important to be vaccinated. But I think it's interesting in how the vaccine was rolled out when Merck presented its clinical data to the FDA, they really didn't have sufficient data for male approval. And I, I looked at the transcript of the conversation with the FDA and it, it seemed like there was something going on there, at least you know, in my sort of clinical perspective, that Merck really just started out focusing on women and in young women. Because, you know, we have routinized healthcare practices around pap smears, around girls' uh, sexual and reproductive health management, and we don't really have the equivalent for boys. So that's maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I agree that if you're going to vaccine, it should be boys and girls. I do think it's problematic that the Gardasil vaccine now has nine strains. But originally, it only protected against two of the most common cervical cancer right, types, right. two of the most common genital wart-causing types. And that, too, was troubling because, really, if you look at the data, and I, I apologize, but I don't remember the exact statistics right now, but the 16 and 18 that HPV, the original Gardasil, protected against exclusively, those cancer-causing types of HPV are most common, most prevalent in the U.S. 
and some other Western European countries. But there are other types that are also very high. They're not as prevalent as 16 and 18. So 16 and 18 was an important place to start. But yeah, the HPV vaccine isn't, it's not, you know, we think about vaccines as being a preventive where you get vaccinated, you're then protected. Even herd immunity is premised on the idea that once you are vaccinated, you're no longer at risk and other people are no longer at risk from, you know, the contagion from you. And that's not really what the HPV vaccine is. And that's where my book as an anthropologist mm-hmm. and coming to it to sort of say, well, what does that mean if it's not really functioning in the way that, you know, if we say, okay, you should get the HPV vaccine because we want to promote vaccination because we think vaccines are good. One of my critiques is that, you know, a lot of the conversation sort of similar to your skepticism about varicella. Um, a lot of my skepticism is, you know, if we say that all vaccines are the same, all vaccines are good, we can't promote just one, we can't just say let's be selective because that harms people's willingness to do important vaccines. Well, once, yeah, um, I mean, the whole concept of vaccines, though, I mean, Coop was right. I mean, he was a genius, but he was right. What he said was, once you make the decision to go in that direction, you can't do it halfway. HPV is a different story in some respects because you still have to have safe sex. You have to have other precautions. And as we're learning, HPV in and of itself, the certain strains you get may not even be that big of an issue and can be gone and taken care of by your own immune system as well. What I'm getting from you, and I, I, by the way, agree with you in this, is it sounds like there was a really bad job of education by physicians and a really bad job of education amidst the hysteria of, oh, my God, we have to talk to young girls about sex. I'm actually not trying to lay blame at the feet of physicians. I actually think that Merck had a responsibility in its marketing strategies, in its physician education strategies, to focus on HPV education. And Merck did not do that because they wanted to avoid this discussion of adolescent sexuality that you're bringing up, specifically female adolescent sexuality, because at the time, the vaccine was only approved for girls, partially because of some decisions that Merck did make that led to clinical... Well, is that Merck's fault? I'm not not a big Merck advocate. I don't take any money from Merck, but is that Merck's fault or the government's fault? Because... I mean, Merck is a business. They are not here to help the public. They don't care. They're going to try to make money, and they're given an opportunity to make more money. And God knows the pharmaceutical companies have a lot of stuff at their own feet. So shouldn't our government be protecting and saying, you know what, guys, if you're going to do this, or did they tell them to do that and Merck didn't? I'm not just blaming Merck for sure. I think public health officials also bought the Merck marketing message. I mean, that's part of my critique okay. is that public Good health point. officials also took up Merck's position of cervical cancer vaccine. And, you know, well, I'm not against cervical cancer vaccine. I think it's a good point. I think I I think the science, I got to tell you, the science has proven that the cervical cancer vaccines work against the strains they did. I think the issue is you're saying the you're saying the education component. I'm just saying I think it's at doctor's feet, nurses feet, public health people feet. I don't think the company's job is to do that. So Merck owed us nothing. They owed their own stockholders the ability to make money. I I don't disagree with you. I don't think that Merck is, you know, some kind of public benevolent entity. Um, But I think how they shaped the conversation is very clear. They pushed legislation for the vaccine very early after its approval, which actually harmed those, the legislation that Paul, because there was a huge to do when the Texas governor at the time, Rick Perry, overrode the legislature that was the legislature that was debating whether to create a required vaccine for girls, sixth and seventh grade girls for school entry, which is sort of a standard practice for most, you know, most vaccines right. tied to school right. entry to kind of increase uptake. And when it was this, you know, when Rick Perry overstepped the legislation and issued an executive order, there was sort of a domino effect in which Merck's lobbying around these policies in all of the states 
became explicit. I mean, in the New York Times, one of the executives admitted that they had pushed this forward too fast and acknowledged directly their lobbying efforts. So, yeah, we can separate the two and say Merck is not a public good entity. And I totally agree. And, you know, can we throw them, you know, we can go on and on about corporations. It's not that, you know, that's not an interesting critique. But I do <laughs> think there. that that message, I mean, it's an interesting critique, but it's, you know, well trod. Right. I think it's important to recognize that the message that Merck presented of a cervical cancer vaccine without an emphasis on HPV, without an emphasis on the complexity of HPV, really is at the fault of Merck and Merck's sort of strategic positioning and that public health officials, right, you want to, wanted to promote something that was to the public's good. And I think this is part of the larger sort of... And let me ask you, we're, vaccine we're running out of time, and this is a fascinating people. fascinating conversation, and I really appreciate, by the way, you're joining us. Uh, Samantha Gottlieb, and may I say, while people are listening, it's a book, Not Quite a Cancer Vaccine, Selling HPV and Cervical Cancer. I never read books prior to interviewing the guests. I'm excited to read this now because I always I always try to, like, you know, try to learn what I can so I don't buy into it or go, this. I just want to talk about the subject. But <laughs> let me ask sure. you one thing before we go. HPV oh, vaccine has done way more good than harm and it's it's been a very positive thing are you on that side of the hpv vaccine or are you do you wish it didn't happen no i think it's mostly a good thing i think that there's a lot to critique and to look into and to think critically about it i don't think it's intrinsically a bad vaccine and i'm certainly not against vaccines overall thinking about how it came to be and how we understand it and you know what people decide to do and how they take care of their bodies after getting vaccinated right as you said being aware that you can still get you can still get cancers right um, even after being vaccinated is an important education piece so that was my last question. You kind of went into it. I kept interrupting you. I apologize. So the question <laughs> I have is this, and I will listen and not say anything, but what do you think the takeaway message is then that you wish you could get across? Because I think we're on the same page there too. It's like, let's educate, but tell me what you think it should be. Well, I think increasing awareness that HPV is everywhere. Most of us who have had a sexual partner at some point in our lives have probably either been exposed or will get it at some point. Fortunately, our bodies have been very, are very resilient and most of us are able to clear it. But I do think we, what remains to be explored is, you know, we don't have regular HPV testing for men. So we don't, men don't know if they have HPV. And as we mentioned earlier, it can cause other cancers that are not just cervical and it affects penises and anuses and oral cancers all related. So, you know, we need to think about how sexual health is managed and also the fact that, you know, that you can get the vaccine and you can still get one of those cancers is pretty important piece of education i think that's lacking as well samantha gottlieb thank you so much for joining us it was a fun interview and i think we covered a lot of ground in a very short time i i appreciate it nice meeting you you're listening to primary care today on reach md and again samantha gottlieb is the author of the book not quite a cancer vaccine selling hpv and cervical cancer it's rutgers university press it came out in january and you can pick it up at all the various bookstores and sites thanks a lot for listening